Welcome to Love Your Heart, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic's Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute. These podcasts will help you learn more about your heart, thoracic, and vascular systems, ways to stay healthy, and information about diseases and treatment options. Enjoy. Okay, welcome back everyone for session two of Ask the Heart Doctor podcast and video. I'm Eric Roselli, the surgical director of the Aorta Center, and I'm here with Melinda Sai, the medical director of the Aorta Center. We had a really fun conversation just now talking about aortic disease. We talked um, a bit about COVID-19, about some of the causes for, for aneurysms and dissections, and including uh, presentation symptoms and, uh, and how to monitor these things with imaging. Now, in this session, we're gonna talk a little bit more about medical therapy for this. Um, and, and I think, you know, you had spoken in the last session about hypertension being a risk factor for aortic disease. Um, what is, uh, what is what, well, first of all, let's just say, what is the medical therapy for patients with an aneurysm? So the medical therapy for uh, aortic aneurysm, there's no definitive medical therapy that has pro- been proven to be effective in for prevention and like dramatic slowing down of aortic aneurysm. So okay. surgery at the right time exactly. is the answer, right? Exactly. That's good. The I'm best gonna... medical therapy is, is a well-timed surgery. Yes. Uh, a, pre, a preemptive strike is what I like to call. Now, having said that, there are certain things uh, in common medicine, like certain risk factors, especially hypertension and weight, uh, that play into that increase the shear stress on the aorta. If you are heavy, if you're lugging around 50, 60 extra pounds, that's gonna add extra excess uh, pressure to the, to the aorta. If your blood pressure, same way, is very high, it's gonna put excess pressure. So our goal is, if you've been identified to have aortic aneurysm, especially in the front, so the closer to the heart, we strive to uh, maintain a good blood pressure, uh, according to the American uh, Heart Association guidelines. Uh, certainly the rule of thumb is 120 or 80 or less. Uh, what I tell patients is lifestyle modification also. Avoid intense isometric exertion. Avoid things that jack up your heart rate and blood pressure too rapidly uh, at, to, a, to, a, to a dangerous level. The other important thing, so. What are the medications we commonly use? Uh, beta blockers, metoprolol, atenolol. Uh, these are some of the commonly used medications because what they do is they also lower the heart rate, they lower the blood pressure. So blood pressure and heart rate, that constitutes the shear stress on the aorta. So it blunts the shear stress on the aorta. Uh, now, it is imp- uh, uh, so beta blockers is one, ACE inhibitors or ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers, these are the other, these are the two there's some uh, data that suggests that ARBs may be helpful in certain inherited aortopathies. And the but names of some of the ARBs. Yeah, so like Cozar, Irbesartan, Cozar, etc. Now, the important another one point I would like to make, which a lot of folks miss out, including doctors, is. If you have an aortic aneurysm close to the heart and if your heart valve, the aortic valve is severely leaking and you also have an aortic aneurysm, you have to be very careful about prescribing beta blockers because in that, that specific situation, if you have severe aortic valve leak and you have an aneurysm, 
giving beta blocker and slowing your heart rate down dramatically can be detrimental uh, in to, you, to your care. So it is, it has to be, you, there needs to be caution ascertained in that situation. But long story short, like Eric mentioned, the best medical therapy for aortic aneurysm is indeed a well-timed uh, surgical intervention. Very good. Um, when it comes to sort of guiding that antihypertensive therapy, many, question, many questions were brought in by patients about specifics of their combination of meds. Yeah. I think really the key is that we aim for the proper exactly. goal of therapy, exactly. right? Aim so, for goal-directed goal, goal therapy beta, and lose weight. Beta blockers are great. Yeah. But if you're having a lot of symptoms from beta blockers, yeah. we don't want you to not be active and gaining weight. Yeah. So it really should be targeting exactly. under 140, under 90, the lower the better without symptoms. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Great. What about activity levels? So, you know, so many people ask about what's the best exercises for me? Can I exercise? What I can and can't do? Um, you know, can I go up and down stairs? Can I go back to work? Can I go back to doing, you know, various kinds of exercise. Yeah. So, so this is a, a very interesting area. And, you know, uh, there are no real randomized trials to suggest uh, one, uh, one set of activities better than the other. A lot of consensus opinions based on people's biases and experiences. Now, what I tell our patients is, as I alluded to earlier, Avoid intense isometric exertion. And I play it out. Uh, don't do, you know, anything that makes you do that, you know, that is putting a lot of pressure on your heart. Uh, I generally do not restrict aerobic activity. So then people get very nuanced as to what should be my target heart rate. Uh, is it 120, 125? Is it 125? Is it 130? I haven't the slightest clue. I mean, I generally give them the ballpark of 120 beats per minute or what have you. But that is not real, based on real hard data. Now, I will tell you one thing. If you are on a beta blocker and if your resting heart rate is in the 50s, it takes a long time and a lot of effort to get your heart rate up to 120 or beyond. So, you know, uh, that is something to be taken into context. The other aspect is people talk about weightlifting. What I tell folks is it is okay to do some muscle toning activity, but the, the free weightlifting, et cetera, is, is generally not a good idea. Uh, again, what are the cutoffs? Are there any written established guidelines? The answer is they are based on not a whole lot of data. Uh, so what I, what I tell, depending upon where the aortic aneurysm is, if, if the aneurysm is at a size where I'm going to recommend an operation, then I'm going to tell them don't be uh, lifting beyond 25, 30 pounds. Now, if it is borderline, I may go up to 50, 60 pounds. I know... This is somewhere where we differ a little exactly. bit. Exactly. So me, me and Eric, I mean, you know, what I tell my patients that I share with Eric is as follows. If I say 50 pounds, Eric is going to tell you 70 pounds. If I say 70, he's going to tell you 90 pounds. You're stronger than you think, Melinda. Exactly. So the point is, what the, the, maybe I have a weak heart, maybe I'm not as, I'm, uh, but the point is there is, it's, it's range and a lot of it is common sense. The big picture is, Things that make you gain weight, you know, or that make you prevent gaining weight, meaning aerobic activity, walking, uh, elliptical, all those things, you're fine to do. 
yeah, for the I, most part. I think that's true. For, for the vast majority of people, you continue most activities yeah. of daily living. Certainly, you know, if gardening is your activity, yeah. uh, go ahead and lift up a bag of dirt that weighs 30 or 40 pounds. Make multiple trips, though. Don't stack them up and try to throw two or three on your shoulder at a time. The, the, the subset of patients who often have the really detailed questions about specifics about their heart rate are folks who are involved with really highly uh, active activity, you know, some competitive cyclists and things like that. And what we've done, because you're right, there is no perfect answer. Uh, what we've done in some of those patients is exercise them and tested them and checked. And I think that, you know, if you want to figure out what's the right heart rate for you, if you're someone who exercises vigorously and, and competitively or something, um, you should figure out what heart rate it is that starts to drive your blood pressure up. And then you can kind of really fine tune that. And every person is going to be individual. So, you know, you can develop that sort of precision plan for folks. Um, and we've talked about doing a bit of that in our sports cardiology center. And we've done that with some of our very uh, active folks who have a, a small aneurysm that we're monitoring. So let's get on to the next bit because, you know, the, 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 the definitive therapy really is for, for any segment of the aorta that's at risk is to replace it with an operation. Um, and we have, some, uh, we have some pretty good recommendations about, about guiding that. It's certainly balanced against the risk of surgery that we provide, and that's going to vary between centers. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about the size when we tell folks to go ahead and have surgery? So, yes. So when you send them to me, for sure. Yeah, you know? This is important, uh, and there is obviously nuanced decision. I will start by saying the following. Uh, it is crucial to have an experienced team of providers in an experienced center. And when I say uh, experienced team of providers, it is the doctor who's taking care of the patient. The, the CT techs who know how to acquire the good images, the echo techs who know, acquire, who know how to acquire good images, and, you know, uh, the surgical team, uh, not just Dr. Roselli, but, but the team that surrounds the critical care team. So it is, this, is, this is a team sport. More than anywhere else, this is a team sport. So, you know, the guidelines, the recommendations that I make for my patients here some of them are aggressive recommendations about timing of surgery because I know that I have a, the luxury of a, an excellent team surrounding me. And, and I think of myself as a quarterback in trouble. And when I'm in trouble, I'm going to throw a pass and I'm going to expect the wide receiver to catch it. I may not be accurate. So, you know, the point is it is absolutely important to have, have a good team with good published outcomes as you are looking around for to take care of your aorta. Having said that, so if you are somebody with uh, inherited aortopathy, like a Marfan or Lois Dietz, et cetera, clearly we are not going to wait till five centimeters or beyond. Uh, if you are, and it's, uh, you know, it's- Five it's, and a half centimeters. Exactly. Beyond. If you are, if you have an aortic aneurysm or even a dilated aorta in about four and a half centimeter range or what have, with a familial aortopathy like Marfan's or Lois D's, we are gonna recommend, especially in a, in a good center uh, with the experienced provider, for sure close follow-up and an elective procedure. Now, the recommendations, the guideline recommendation is if you do not have major risk factors, uh, then you wait till it is five and a half centimeters. Uh, if you have risk factors, you wait 
you, your aorta needs to be about five centimeters or so. But the five centimeters a number is a number. Somebody who could be six foot two inches versus five foot four inches. How can the five centimeter have the same meaning in these two pa patients? So what we also do is not only do we accurately measure these uh, in terms of diameter, but we also index it to their height. And if your threshold is beyond a certain number, we identify through our research that the, the ratio of uh, aortic area to height of more than 10 centimeter, if you reach beyond that, especially in a place like this experience center with excellent outcomes, I would not have, I would start talking elective surgery in those situations. So again, the common, the big uh, pic summary picture is this is a nuanced decision individualized to the patients and what holds true for a place like Cleveland Clinic may or may not hold true for lesser experienced centers. Yeah, I think that's accurate. So um, just a couple things I would add to that decision-making process because it is something we do as a team, yeah. right? So when we, uh, our balancing risks and benefits, we look at each individual based on the details of their aortic disease, which might include familial factors, genetic triggers, et cetera. We also look at their other non-aortic conditions, which might increase your risk for surgery. Let's say you have bad lung disease or some kidney disease or something else going on. And then we look internally at our own outcomes. It's all three of those factors that all come into play when we make this decision making. Um, and, uh, and we have to individualize it for each, each person and for Absolutely. each, each uh, operator who's providing those operations. We are working on, uh, I can speak as a member of the uh, Society of Thoracic Surgeons Task Force on Aortic Surgery and Aortic Disease. We're working on developing quality measures for centers, uh, equivalent to the sort of star system we use for ranking uh, heart surgery with regards to coronary bypass and valve surgery. And, Hopefully that'll be out in the next year or two. We've now finally got some pretty good data that we can use for those. Um, and uh, with regards to the height, one of the patients asked a question, but her aorta is only 3.9 centimeters and she's short and she's worried about it. That height question, I mean, the, the calculation's not that complex. Some people kind of get caught up in the ratio, but it really only seems to be important for folks who maybe have some other risk factors, yeah. but are in that range kind of between four and a half and five exactly. and a half, wouldn't you say? Exactly, so I mean, you know, once you reach a threshold that is where elective surgery should be considered just based on diameter alone, then, you know, the, the height business is not as important. Or if you are a, like a four centimeter or a 3.9, it's not the, you know, it is relevant in the gray zone areas where you have to, uh, you know, take that into account. Sorry for that ring, that's my pager. I can't silence that thing. <laughs> so the operating room will be calling me soon and we'll be finishing soon. But, um, uh, but we do have some good questions about what the surgery looks like. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and read and answer a couple of those. Many of them were about the timing of surgery and I think we addressed that fairly well. Um, some of the questions were about the risk of surgery. So um, this one patient mentions that, sorry, wish I could turn that off, but I can't. What's that? No, I don't need to call, it's okay. Um, it's just a couple of different pages coming through. This one patient uh, is 81 years old and mentions that uh, they have an aneurysm that's now uh, six centimeters and um, they've been told that their age is a concern. Um, I, I don't really look at age alone as, as an as a independent 
predictor of risk. It's all the other things we talked about. It's if six centimeters and that 81-year-old person is in good health otherwise and their other organ systems suggest that they can handle this and, uh, and my team is the one doing it, I might uh, tell that person that the risk of surgery, which includes death and stroke, would be very low in the range of uh, one to three percent, depending on some of the details of their anatomy uh, and other factors. We've operated on patients in their 90s, even in emergency situations, and they've done well. Having said that, there's many patients in their 80s or their 90s who we say, you know, we, we do worry about the risk of surgery maybe being higher, like five or 10 or 20 percent, or maybe even so high that. Uh, um, it would be prohibitive because your quality of life would be, yeah. we think, permanently affected uh, and, by and, it. And it is crucial. You know, anytime we are working up these patients, especially on the mature side of 80, uh, you know, uh, you are having that conversation. What is it that you, I mean, you know, I'm having this conversation, the, you know, depending upon their other uh, issues, this is your ballpark risk and, you know, uh, you may be at a higher risk, but you know if this ruptures, you're gone. Uh, if it doesn't rupture, everything goes well. You are you are living a very healthy life with a good quality of life. Then you we have we have added some years to your life. Uh, now on the flip side, uh, if you have a stroke, then it's a problem on the spot. So you know everything. This is a nuanced decision, which is where again I started my conversation about treatment with having an experienced team of providers yeah. is absolutely crucial in this situation. And when it comes down to those decisions about the specific anatomy and the risks and how you're gonna recover and what your life will be like, it really also depends on the segment of your aorta involved. So, uh, and, so and we have several questions about treatment options, open versus endovascular. Um, what we found is that for disease involving the proximal or the most upstream parts of the aorta, the aortic root, the ascending aorta, and, and most of the aortic arch, uh, most of the time those have to be treated with open surgery. It's okay because actually open surgery, uh, I know it sounds scary to have your chest, you know, folks talking about your chest cracked. We, we actually saw it and put it back together nice and neatly. As you know, Melinda, you see many of these patients recover beautifully. And we've got folks who go back to doing things like running marathons. It's a very well-tolerated kind of operation with a very low risk. And even, you know, even uh, people with complex medical histories can often recover from those surgeries very well. For the most part, those operations are done open, but they're also very well tolerated, especially when it involves the aortic root. Um, and part of the reason why, for now, almost all of those operations have to be done open is because it's a really short segment of the aorta that has a lot of things going on. It's really that section of the aorta, as I say, sort of between your heart and your brain. So we've got to be very precise and we've got to kind of hand tailor that sort of reconstruction when we repair, uh, which is essentially replace that segment of the aorta. Now for downstream segments of the aorta, the descending aorta, we've more, more and more now treated most of those patients with an endovascular option. That's a least invasive operation where we approach this by going through the groin now we've got better devices that are even smaller and smaller caliber, so we can even do it sometimes just with a puncture in the groin, not even an incision in the groin. Still a big operation on the inside, and still the principle is the same, that we replace that section of aorta with a graft, with a fabric hose, 
but it's held in place on the inside with stents. The key to whether someone's a candidate for that really depends on their specific anatomy. Is there a section of aorta on either side of the bad section of aorta where a stent can grab onto that thing from the inside and hold that tube of fabric in place? And uh, for the longest time now, really, um, over 20, going on 20 plus years, we've had some pretty good devices for treating those isolated diseases in the straight sections of the aorta. Now what we're seeing is, is innovation and development to create more uh, complex devices that allow us to get those aneurysms that are encroaching on sections of the aorta where branch vessels come off. These are custom kind of devices in some situations or even off-the-shelf devices, but they're currently all investigational. And uh, our center has access to pretty much all of those uh, various uh, iterations of devices in the U.S. And several other large centers also have uh, those uh, trials enrolling patients. Many of them are early phase trials. Uh, and um, if you're at a center where you don't have access, you can reach us at the Cleveland Clinic. We're happy to sort of help coordinate those kind of evaluations to see if you're, you're a candidate for that. Um, were there any other uh, comments about uh, surgery or questions about uh, endovascular options um, that uh, you wanted to make any comments no, about? No, I, I think, you know, the, the, again, I go back to, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, situation. Uh, there are times when majority of the patients follow a script book, but there's a lot of patients where there's nuanced decision-making. And, you know, like Dr. Roselli talked about a whole body of investigational research uh, in medical devices in, in a couple of statements, but that is an extensive field uh, which is taking a lot of resources and development and some pretty slick stuff is coming out such that, you know, we are, the first and foremost is safety of patients. How can we do things better? Then comes how can we uh, do things in a lesser invasive way so that the morbidity and the quality of life issues downstream are minimized. And, but, but, you know, uh, it is to understand that not everybody is going to be the same. You should be able to identify the nuanced differences and be able to deliver. Yeah, sometimes, you know, the thing we talk about is, look, everybody wants less invasive. It sounds great, but you have to make sure that you're looking closely at it and understanding that you're giving it a fair assessment. Sometimes less invasive is actually higher risk yeah. for certain situations and you're better off treating with an open repair. It might take a little longer to recover from, but ultimately you'll have a better result. And so um, I think it's important again to, to focus on having a team exactly. that can talk to you about the various options so you can tailor the, those options so that uh, you're not just getting sort of an, uh, an, an average of outcomes exactly. to help make your decision. You're getting something that's very precise, a very precision medicine kind of focused decision that's based on what your particular needs are and you have a team that you trust that can give you that, that broad sort of view. So uh, thank you again for, for joining me in this conversation. You and I can sit around and talk about aortas for a really long time, but no one wants to probably listen more than, than what we've provided in these. Uh, although we look forward to doing something like this again, so please keep the questions coming. Uh, we really enjoy the opportunity to discuss this and hope this has been helpful for everyone listening. Thank you again, everybody, for joining. It's been uh, fun, and keep the questions coming and stay safe. But remember one thing, you know, COVID or no COVID, 
if you need uh, medical help, please seek it. Yeah, we can uh, do it safely. Yeah. Great. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash loveyourheartpodcast. podcast.